1 Kings, all of chapter 21. Nabot's Vineyard. Some time later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. The vineyard in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard and useful vegetable garden since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard or, if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. But Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, Because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, Sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said, Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting, and seat Naboth in a prom prominent place among the people. But seat two scoundrels opposite him, and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and nobles who lived in Nabal's city did as Jezebel directed in the letters he had written to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scrondels came and sat opposite him, and brought charges against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth hath cursed both God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. Then he sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite that he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tisbite. Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says, Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, This is what the Lord says. In the place where the dogs licked up neighbor's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. Ahab said to Elijah, So you have found me, my enemy. 
I have found you here, he answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. He says, I'm going to bring disaster on you. I will wipe out your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, and that of Basha, son of Ahijah, because you have aroused my anger and have caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, Dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds will feed on those who die in the country. There was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols, like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. Thank you, Cora. Um, I'd invite Donovan to come up. Now, some of you, many of you will know Donovan, but I thought I'd ask him two questions before he speaks to us this morning. Um, so Donovan, tell us um, who you are, where your family is, how long you've been here. Okay, so uh, I'll start with where my family is. They're sitting right there. Welcome, <laughs> um, so, family. So uh, my name is Donovan. Uh, well, I know most of you, but just for those of you who don't, I'm one of the elders at the church just around the corner in Maidavale. Uh, been there for, well, this is our seventh year. Moved here from Cape Town, South Africa, way back then. And looking forward to seeing family again at the end of the year over Christmas. Uh, it'll be the first Christmas we had with them in eight years. So that'll be really, really wonderful. Um, what is the rest Excellent. of the questions? All right, then I'll jump into another one. So, John, have you been involved in planting this church? Um, maybe you could share a story with us in terms of your experience of planting another church. Right. Yeah, yeah. So um, it was something I told Jared the other day. It's quite interesting that... Um, <laughs> Back in uh, South Africa, we were in a church a little bit bigger than the one in Maidavale, and, uh, and we also planted a church uh, in the neighboring suburb, um, and it was the, the youth guy and his wife, who was the children's worker, with their two little kids, who went across to do that. And I just thought, wow, there's a lot of similarities here. Um, and we sent off a bunch of people as well, and, uh, and all the good people, of course, we sent, just like we did here. <laughs> And, um, and we felt the pain as we're feeling at the moment. Uh, it feel, I feel a bit like, you know, the little boy on the dike. I don't know, you know, that story where he's trying to stick his finger in all the little holes because the, the dam wall is busy cracking and all this, the leaks are coming out and he's trying to stop it from... It's kind of like the, the experience we're having right now at the moment as, uh, as all the, we, these ministries are, are needing new leaders. And it's, it's actually really good because refreshing our church... It's, uh, it's meaning we need to do more training, uh, and God is being very gracious to us. And, uh, and we hear lots of good stories from, from Jared. Every Monday morning in staff meeting, he comes almost breathlessly telling us how amazing things are and how many people have come, and, and we have to try and one-up him and say, well, we had more, but, you know, that kind of thing. 
Um, so it's a, it's a wonderful thing that we can, we can partner together in the gospel like this. And uh, it's really wonderful to, to see old friends again and, and also some new people as well. So um, I would say you're welcome to visit Maidavale, but um, not on Sunday mornings. Come here and then you, you're more than welcome to visit at other times. Um, shall I just pray and get into it? Great, let me do that. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the incredible um, privilege of being able to, to uh, share in the gospel together that, uh, that you have given us your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he has rescued us and saved us, um, that as Fee said a little bit earlier on, we, we are family, we are, we are one in Christ because we have the same Heavenly Father, and we thank you for that. Uh, we thank you for the work that you're doing here. We thank you for the way in which you are um, to overturning uh, lives, that you're turning people from darkness to light, and that this work continues uh, until the day when the Lord returns in glory. And so we pray that you may um, make us uh, ready for that, that you may equip us for that, to share the, the gospel of Christ with all we meet and that you would be glorified in that. And as we come to your word now this morning, Lord, please speak to us, enable us to understand what you have to say to us today, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so 1 Kings 21. Jared said I should use the ESV, so, and I noticed the NIV was up there, so if, if what I quote from the Bible sounds slightly different to your Bible, um, it's just a slightly different English version, but uh, you should probably be able to work it out along the way. 1 Kings 21. Well, maybe his uh, landscape architect suggested it, or maybe he wanted a little project to take his mind off all the stress of running a kingdom. Whatever it was, uh, when King Ahab saw Naboth's vineyard next door to his holiday home in Jezreel, he said to himself, now, that would make a great veggie patch. And, and so began the terrible story that was just read to us of corruption and greed and injustice and the murder of an innocent man. And they all got away with it. And it raises for us the difficult question that I think we deal with today. And that's the question of justice. Where is the justice? Where is God when good people die? Where is God when his own people die for standing up for God? And how do we cope with that? Not, not just as we look at this story, which happened a couple of thousand years ago, but when we, we think about all through history, when we think about today, when we think about perhaps even our own family situation. I, I don't know all the things that have gone on in your life, but you may have experienced similar kinds of injustice, uh, persecution, or, or things ripped away from you by wicked people. Perhaps even your own inheritance has been taken from you because of, of family members or, or other people who have squandered it. How do we cope with that kind of question? Why does God allow that to happen? Well, to answer that question, we need to take a closer look at this great little story. And it begins, first of all, in those first four verses with a tempting offer. So the king of Israel decides he wants a veggie patch, and he's going to tear up a vineyard to do that, which already tells you this is going to be a bad story. I mean, 
who would, who would trade in a bottle of wine for broccoli? But there you go. And anyway, Ahab goes off to his neighbor. Verse 2, he offers Naboth what, what sounds actually like a pretty sweet deal. Uh, he's saying, look, I, I'll give you a better vineyard than you've, than you've got. I, I'll, I'll give it to you. I'll give you even, you know, the, the cash uh, if that's what you would prefer. No questions asked. But like a scene from that classic Aussie movie, The Castle, <laughs> Naboth looks at Ahab and he says, you're dreaming. <laughs> and he turns down the king's offer. And you, you say, well, why? Why would he do that? Well, verse 3 tells us why. Verse 3 says, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Naboth refuses because he says, this land is my inheritance. Now, at this point in the story, you might be thinking to ourselves, yeah, well, sure, that, that's fine. It's, it's great to have this amazing inheritance. But, but think like a businessman, Naboth. I mean, this, this is an offer you can't refuse. This is a once-in-a-lifetime offer. You could, why bother with the land you got? You could take that money and buy a nice little place by the seaside and retire on that. And, and as it is anyway... This king and his queen are the kind of people you don't want to get on the bad side of. Um, you know, you, you upset them and trouble could come your way, which it did. So why is Naboth being so stubborn? Is he waiting for a better offer? Some people suggest that. But actually, I think the key is in what Naboth says. He says, the Lord forbid that I should give you an inheritance of my father's. And what this, is what this is showing to us is, is what the people of Israel lived with in those days. And it's quite different to how we live today. You see, in those days, in Israel, people didn't just buy and sell land like we do today. No, the land in Israel's time back then was the promised land. It was a land promised by God to Abraham, the first uh, Jew, you could put it that way, the first, the, the one to whom where all the Jewish people would come from. Abraham, the father of the Jews, in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15, God promises he will give him a wonderful land for his descendants. And that land, of course, uh, 500 years later in the time of Joshua, uh, that became a reality. They entered into the promised land and each family, each tribe was given their allotted portion of the land as an inheritance. And so because their, their land is an inheritance from God, not just from their forefather, because it's from God, it means it belongs to God. It's not theirs to buy and sell. And so Leviticus 25, 23, if you're interested in this, Numbers 36 and verse 7, basically says that you can't sell the land. Unless, one, one condition, unless you were in abject, life-threatening poverty and there was, there was nothing else you could do but, but sell the land and get the money from that to get out of the, the, the fix that you're in. But even so, even if that did happen, even if someone did sell the land, after 50 years or every 50 years, shall I say, not after 50 years, but every 50 years in the land, there would be a time called uh, the year of jubilee where all the land that had been sold and passed would be passed back to that original family again 
So it was meant to be an everlasting inheritance in that sense, that the families were meant to keep their inheritance, not just trade it off for money and go wherever they wanted to. At this time in Israel's history, of course, not many people are following God's word anymore. It's a very sad, a very dark time in, in Israel's history. And, and so it may have been commonplace then for people to just trade like we do today. Um, but for a man like Naboth, who loves God, who is faithful to the Lord, that is not an option. It, it's tempting. It's a tempting offer. But he serves the Lord and he says, um, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance. He's almost saying, don't tempt me in that. I, 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 I mean, it's, it's a really nice offer. But, but I, I want to follow God on this. And so he stands firm. And when Ahab realized that Naboth would not be budged, verse 4 tells us he he went to his house vexed and sullen. That's the way that the ESV puts it. It's great. Because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my father. Just in case we forgot. And he lay down on his bed and he turned his face away and he would eat no food. It's a pathetic scene, isn't it? The, the king of Israel. He has a palace in Samaria. He has a holiday home in Jezreel. And despite all the other things that he has... Because he can't have his veggie patch. Because he can't have more, he spits his dummy and he falls into a fat sulk uh, because someone said no to him. That's the image you get of, of the king of Israel here. Now, as I'm sure many of you are aware, a couple of weeks ago, uh, seven rugby players from North Sydney made the news for all the wrong reasons. Uh, it wasn't because of the, the, the bad behavior that they were called out for. It wasn't because they, they, there was some drunken brawl or because of a drug bust or some kind of physical abuse. Now, the real problem was that they refused to wear a modified version of their rugby jersey with rainbow pride colors on it. You might have heard about this. And the reason they did that is because for them, their first allegiance... Is not to rugby, but to God. And so they, they politely declined. They quietly declined, which meant that they were not allowed to play the game, which meant also that the media and, and many people who support that rugby team uh, just spewed out all kinds of vitriol against them. Kind of ironic, really. In the name of inclusion, these men were excluded. Uh, they were accused of hateful bigotry by those who were being hatefully bigoted towards them. But if this world is all there is, if this is all that you're living for, if, if this world is all about money and sex and power and pleasure and rugby, well, to say no when everyone else is saying yes seems almost unthinkable. And it's going to provoke a reaction maybe one that you're not even ready for. So if you haven't sorted out your convictions about your idols, about the, the idols of our, of our world today, of money and sex and pleasure and power, if you haven't sorted out what comes first here, that God must come first, 
before all these other things, and sometimes good things, like the properties that we own and the, and the things that we enjoy. If you haven't sorted that out, now is the time to do it before the day of trouble comes. Be clear about your ultimate allegiance. Prepare yourself accordingly, like Naboth did. Peter, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have within you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So it was a tempting offer. But Naboth refused, and he trusted God, and trusted in God's promises, no matter what would come. Which leads us on then to the travesty of justice that we see in the bulk of the story, verse 5 to 16. So we, we join the story again in verse 5. There's Jezebel sitting uh, at the dinner table wondering why Ahab hasn't come down yet. She goes up to check on him, and there the king is lying in his bed. And uh, after he has a good whine to her about this awful, hateful Naboth, whose bigoted views have viciously denied this poor King Ahab from being able to enjoy the one thing he really, really has set his heart on, that will just make everything amazing, that, that will make his life worth living. Jezebel, with much rolling of eyes, says in verse 7, Do you now govern Israel? In other words, are you a king or are you a wimp? Your problem, Ahab, is that you still think a king should be subject to the law when everyone knows that a real king is the law. What the king wants will become the law. I mean, that's how Jezebel's father would have, would have acted. King Ethbal of the, the, the neighboring region of Phoenicia. Uh, if somebody gets in your way, crush him. Might makes right. I mean, that's really the world we live in today. So while Ahab orders some lunch, he heads off down to the office, uses the king's stationery, and writes a couple of letters to the elders and the nobles of, the, of this town that Naboth lives in. And uh, she gives them very specific instructions, kind of bullet-pointed, of how they will disappear this Naboth problem. And so that's what happens. The elders follow her instructions down to the last letter. I mean, the way it's, it's even written here, it's just a total repeat. What she said, they did. And, uh, and so Naboth is framed. You know how the story goes. Uh, he, a couple of scoundrels accuse him of something he didn't do uh, in front of the whole town. And in order to satisfy the law's requirements, he had to be put to death. Before anybody could ask too many questions, he's dragged out and he's killed. Later on in the next book, in Two Kings, when the story is recounted, we, we are also told that even Naboth's sons were disposed of in some kind of underhanded manner. We're not really told how, but you know, they could have you know, accidentally fallen down the stairs or had a hunting accident or went swimming with the cement slippers on. Whatever it was, somebody did something to remove any family interference with Naboth's inheritance. And so verse 15, the news comes to Ahab and like a child at Christmas, he runs off to play with his new present while 
back at home, Jezebel is putting the last of the uh, incriminating evidence into the paper shredder, and they've basically got all away with it. And it's horrifying. You, you look at the story, you get to the, the end of verse 16, and, and it, evil people have gotten away with their injustice, and no one's going to do anything about it, and it's, and it's watertight. And our blood should be boiling at this point in the story. If you're following the story, you, you should be horrified at what's happened. And not just because, well, that was a story from long ago, but like I said earlier, that because this is the kind of thing that happens again and again and again all the time. And especially to God's people. Especially when they stand up for God. I mean, there is a lot of brave talk about daring to be a Daniel. And, and yeah, there are times where we must stand up and speak the truth. But I think the reality is, given what happens to those who stand up and speak out, most of us would be nervous to be a Naboth because something bad could happen to us. And yet, just, just Google uh, Voice of the Martyrs. That's a website that, that catalogues what's going on around the world uh, in the persecuted church. Um, and, and you'll see that Christians are suffering injustice, persecution. Uh, in many cases, uh, they, are, they are treated worse than anyone else. Um, and, and all at the hands of wicked men, some are killed and nobody cares. Well, that's what it looks like, at least. And the temptation is to say to ourselves, well, if, if God is really just surely you do something about this surely if god was really just he should have stopped the whole process before naboth was killed and kind of you know had this this great rescue story of how naboth kind of dodges the the the, the arrows of of his uh of his persecutors and and ta-da you know everybody wins at the end and yet it doesn't happen and that's often the story in this world if God is truly just, wouldn't he do something? And if he doesn't do something, which we see in this story and we've seen in life, does it make him a God worth believing in? That's the kinds of things, this, the kinds of questions this story forces us to consider. What this also does is show us that the Bible is not just a bunch of fairy stories. That the Bible is compelling because it doesn't sugarcoat reality. It doesn't shy away from the hard questions. It shows us the reality of wickedness and evil in our world. And it actually has an answer to it. It acknowledges the travesty of justice. But it shows us true justice. Because you see, the story doesn't end in verse 16. And then we close the book. Now God's word gives us hope. True hope. Real hope hope and that's what this last little section is about as we move on to the time for judgment the time for judgment verse 17 uh, we see basically what happens next is that that while all that happened to Naboth may have been hidden from the public eye that it was all done in secret and in private and it seemed like everybody got away with everything it wasn't hidden from God the word of the Lord comes to the prophet Elijah the Tishbite and tells him to go exactly where Ahab is at that time. So God knows in that moment where Ahab is. He knows exactly what has happened. God sees all. 
God knows all. God knows the, the things that are done in secret and in the dark. They are clear to him like day. And the word of the Lord comes to Elijah and he's sent to the scene of the crime and he delivers judgment on Ahab and his wife Jezebel. And now there's a number of things they have done up until this point. Uh, this isn't the only thing, but the, the judgment, as far as judgments go, this one really is one that fits the crime. They treated Naboth like a dog. They're going to end up as dog food. And, and it happens just as God said it would. Uh, you'll see in the next chapter, if you read on into chapter 22, that Ahab dies exactly the way that it was predicted he would. And later on in 2 Kings 6, long after Elijah himself has died, well, gone to be with the Lord, actually, um, then, uh, then she finally dies as well, in the same way as was told she would. For those of us who've been following their campaign of terror, if you know the story of Ahab and Jezebel, when you read this, this promised judgment, it's a time to cheer. It's finally, the, the, it, it means justice will be served. It's a bit like the news that came out last month. I don't know if you know about the Al-Qaeda leader, Ayman al-Zawahiri. I hope I pronounced it right. Um, he was one of the most wanted men in the world for his involvement in the 9-11 terror attacks where the Twin Towers were, were destroyed. Uh, he was killed just uh, about three or four weeks ago by a, a, a drone strike. And yet, despite the, the, the claim in the newspapers that finally justice has been served, it really was a hollow victory. And, and people also wrote up about that, that, well, actually, you know, 9-11, that was 20 years ago. Um, and, and, and so what difference does this man's death really make anymore? The fact is, 3,000 people are still dead because of what, what he was involved in. Naboth is still dead. If God has such a passion for justice, why is it so late in arriving? And part of the answer to that is, is in this last little section that is really the most confronting part of the story of all. That section from verse 25 onwards, as we're given just a reminder just how evil Ahab and Jezebel were. Uh, they were really wicked people. They were quite a piece of work. And yet, after the writer setting us up with that, we are told that Ahab responded to God's word of judgment. He responds by tearing his clothes, putting sackcloth on and fasting. This time his refusal to eat is not a petulant sulk. This time it's abject, heartfelt remorse. Which leads to really what is the most shocking part of the story. And that is what God says to Elijah at the end, verse 29. Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. And you might say to yourself, what? How could God do that? I mean, surely God doesn't mistake Ahab's torn clothes and his drooping head uh, as a sign of genuine repentance. How can this be just? I mean, just, just because he starts kind of feeling a bit sorry for himself, now suddenly God is willing to forgive him. That, that's not right. What about Naboth? But what we have to understand is that justice postponed is not justice denied. 
Just because God has not acted in or is willing to hold back judgment doesn't mean that he isn't going to judge in the end. Uh, Peter, again, in, in his second letter, 2 Peter 3 and verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some counsel owners, but is patient toward you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But, he also says, the day of the Lord, that's the day of judgment, will come like a thief. It'll come suddenly. We won't be ready for it. So why is God willing to relent, even for someone as bad as Ahab? Well, he's giving him time to repent. Even though in the end you'll know that he doesn't truly repent. This was just remorse. He feels bad, but he never really acts on that. He never turns around and returns the land back to the, the family or any of that kind of thing. He just kind of goes on with himself. And so, so the judgment that, that was predicted upon him happened. But we also need to realize that Ahab isn't the only one deserving of judgment. I mean, we, it's great to point fingers at other people, but we always forget that, that we have our own sins to deal with. In fact, we know ourselves better than we know anybody else. People that we, we look at around the world, uh, and, and in, even in this room, are, we just see the surface of people. But we know our hearts. We know how far down the darkness goes. Our selfishness, our envy, our anger our hidden motives, all those things condemn us before a holy God. And isn't it amazing, isn't it incredible, isn't it scandalous even, that the God of the Bible, this God, the true God, does not desire the death of a wicked person, but that they would turn from their sins and live. 19th century Presbyterian theologian, he said, uh, William S. Plumer, he said, the Almighty does not settle his accounts with his creatures every 30 days. He is long-suffering. He is patient under affronts. He forbears to execute deserved wrath upon offenders. This is one of the striking displays of the goodness of God, designed to lead us to repentance. He bears with us. He is slow to anger. He is the God of patience. Long-suffering is of his very essence. Often for a long time, he delays his judgments. If God can respond so graciously to Ahab, even just with initial kind of baby steps towards repentance and never end up in repentance, if God can be so gracious, you say, you know what? I could have wiped out his entire family in this time, but I'm not going to. I'm, gonna, I'm going to actually give grace to them. If God can do that just for those little baby steps, Imagine how much more he would have responded if Ahab had turned in real, genuine repentance. That's the scandal of grace. There's no one too evil, no one too far, no one too wicked who, who cannot be saved by God. That you may say to yourself, I, I've done too many things. I've, I've acted in ways that, that there is just no forgiveness for me. No. <laughs> Look at Ahab. He was... I can pretty much guarantee he would be much worse than you in the kinds of things that he did. And, and yet, God is even willing to hold out the promise of forgiveness to him. He can do the same for you. But how can that be just? This is where we need to end. How can God be so forgiving without compromising his own holiness? 
And the answer is in another innocent man. In fact, the only truly innocent man, the one who never sinned, who always trusted God, who when he was tempted in the wilderness to give up his inheritance, to gain a shortcut to glory, he refused the devil's bargain. And he knew that that would end in his betrayal, that he would be handed over to his enemies, that they would set up a sham trial, that they would bring two false witnesses to accuse him of things he never did. That they were really just doing the bidding of those pulling the strings behind the scenes who thought they could crucify the Son of God and take his rightful inheritance for themselves. But even in that greatest travesty of justice, where God allowed the only truly good person to die, God's justice and mercy were on full display. Because Jesus, who is God, who is the second person of the Trinity, willingly laid down his life for you and for me, that he paid for our sins with his perfect life. He satisfied God's perfect justice so that mercy might flow to all who turn to him. That's what we're going to celebrate as we share the Lord's Supper in a moment. Acts 17 also tells us that, that he has risen from the dead. That he stands as proof that there is a final day coming when he will judge the world in all righteousness. And so, as Paul says in that little chapter, he says, God now commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn back to God while there still is time. And for those of us who do, for those of us who stand with Christ, not only do we have forgiveness and life and a fresh start, that's an incredible thing. But also, 1 Peter chapter 1 tells us we have an inheritance, a real inheritance. One that cannot perish, spoil, or fade. An inheritance that is kept in heaven for us. No wicked person can ever rip that, that inheritance away. That inheritance will be revealed in the coming age. Not just some piece of land but the new heavens and the new earth. And knowing that that is where we're headed to, knowing that, that there is a judgment day coming where all people will stand before God and where true justice will be served, knowing that, that, that our inheritance in him is kept safe, that means we can stand and say, you know what? I can live with the injustices in this world now because I know that they will not be forgotten. I can, I can live with the fact that, that standing up for God may actually end up with things going wrong in my own life and, and things going badly in my own life because I know that, that my true inheritance is in Christ and He is going to hold me fast. I can lose it all for the sake of Christ. Because I know there's a day coming when all things will be made new. Keep your eyes on him. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise of your word. That all who put their trust in Jesus will be saved. That there's nothing that we can do that, that, that makes us um, worse than anyone else. That we could never be saved. But that, 
that you call all people everywhere to repent. We thank you that, that the gospel is for all of us. We thank you as well that the inheritance of your great kingdom can never be stripped away from us either. That neither the devil nor any other powers or principalities have any uh, claim over that anymore. And that we have an incredible uh, hope in you. Strengthen us, we pray this day, as we share the Lord's Supper, that we'd be strengthened to serve and to glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>